Tonight we're going to talk about something that one billion professing Christians do, and yet something that I believe is unbiblical. No, I'm not talking about dancing. No, I'm not talking about playing cards. No, I'm not talking about going to the movies, which were all things that in earlier times the more conservatives would have shunned. Uh, but I'm talking about infant baptism. And initially, uh, we were going to look at the ordinances, the two ordinances that Jesus himself implemented, which are baptism and communion uh, for the church to regularly do. But tonight, instead of looking at each of them and explaining how they are to work, uh, we're going to do a brief survey of those just real quickly. And then we're going to hone in on one of those two and specifically an issue, which will be infant baptism. Now, just to give a quick survey, Guys, communion is pretty simple, okay? Uh, here's a few stepping stones for your own study. They're on the outline. Uh, in Matthew 26, Jesus instituted communion. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul explained communion. Uh, there's really only two errors that come up with communion, uh, typically speaking, and that is number one, communion is not to be given to unbelievers. So if you're not a believer, communion's not for you, which I'll explain in a second why. And number two is transubstantiation, which is uh, the belief that Jesus literally becomes the bread or, or the bread literally becomes Jesus's body and the cup literally becomes Jesus's blood, which is just a terrible misunderstanding of John chapter six. So if you want to study these things, uh, I think I laid them out there on your handout. And here's the thing. If you just read your Bible, <laughs> it's not hard to figure out what the purpose of communion was. Communion was meant to be a remembrance of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross for our sin, ultimately that we might remember the gospel and give glory to God. Okay, it was, it was to be done in remembrance with the result of us glorifying God. But secondly, baptism, while a little more tricky, is also pretty straightforward, it's not difficult to understand. If you were to survey the entire New Testament, here's what you'll find about baptism. People believed in Christ, and then they were baptized. Okay? It's that simple. They believed in Christ, and then they were baptized. Baptism, therefore, is a sign of inward repentance. It's an outward sign of something that's gone on inwardly. And there's really two major errors where people go wrong with baptism. All right, the first is with regards to salvation. Uh, anywhere ranging from the fact that baptism saves, baptismal regeneration, to just baptism playing a role in salvation, both are wrong and both are equally uh, easily disproven. Baptism doesn't affect one's salvation. It comes after salvation as a public declaration of conversion. And if you're interested in further study, I'll point you to John 3.5. This is often misused and misinterpreted. Um, Acts 2.38, Titus 3.5, which two of these uh, <clears throat> ironically actually state just the opposite, that baptism has nothing to do with salvation, but that it is by grace alone that salvation is brought on. And here's the thing. As we study scripture in its context, the overwhelming testimony is this. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, right? What does Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 say? Can you say it with me? For by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one may boast. Guys, this is the testimony of Scripture over and over and over again, that by grace we have been saved. Baptism is something that you do. It's a work. It is. And so to put trust in the fact that I have been baptized for my salvation is to put trust in something I have done, which is contradictory to the verse that we just said. Now, the second errant view in baptism is what I want to focus in on tonight, and that is infant baptism. We're going to spend the rest of our evening on this topic. Uh, infant baptizers have always intrigued me. Not necessarily because I think they could be right, but really because many Christians within the same vein of evangelicalism as us practice infant baptism. And these guys are not dummies. These are smart guys that are theologians, that are men of God, whom I look up to, whom you look up to. Uh, men in the past like Martin Luther, John Calvin, John Huss, Jonathan Edwards, and men of today's contemporary age like R.C. Sproul, Ligon Duncan, Kevin DeYoung and Tim Keller. Like I said, these guys are not dummies. 
The denominations involved in this are Lutheranism, Methodists, Christian Reformed, Reformed Church of America, Dutch Reformed, Presbyterians, and Roman Catholics. All of these and more baptize infants. And so hopefully one thing we learned from the church history talk is that uh, just because the church does something doesn't mean it's right, right? For one, men are capable of error. And so although tonight, uh, like I said, a Literally, over a billion professing Christians baptize infants. I want to ask this question. What must be the source of guidance and direction for how the church is to operate? It's got to be the scriptures, right? And so my goal tonight as we kind of dive into this humbly, um, but allowing the word of God to speak, my goal is to let the scriptures speak where they speak and remain silent where they remain silent. Now, just as another disclaimer, I understand that um, for some of us, this, this hits home, right? Maybe you've been baptized as an infant. Maybe your parents are strong advocates of this. You grew up in an infant baptizing church. I grew up in an infant baptizing church. So it's not foreign to me. And so what I want to encourage us all to do is just set aside our feelings, set aside our pre- previous experiences and our familial and relational ties, and humbly come to the Word of God to see what it says. So the way we're going to approach this is we're going to go like this. We're going to look at the argument for infant baptism. We're going to go back through that argument and critique it. And then we're going to come out with some conclusions. And really, to begin, the infant baptism argument starts with this. It starts with the relationship between the church and Israel and how one understands that. Israel was God's chosen nation in which he chose to make his name known through There was nothing special about Israel. It just so happened that they were the object of God's sovereign choice in order to make his name known among them and the rest of the world. That's who Israel is. Likewise, though, in the New Testament, the church is God's God's people whom he gains glory through. And what Paedo-Baptists do is they draw a strong connection between the church and Israel, some of which... These connections I agree with, and I think they're accurate, some of which I want to assess, uh, and I think we'll find that maybe we don't agree with. Now, one of the connections that they make, and this is really key, guys, so, um, so tune in. One of the connections that they make is they make a connection between circumcision in the Old Testament and baptism in the New Testament. So to begin to see that, open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 17. And this is really the starting point for this argument. First book in your Bible, the 17th chapter, I'll start in verse 1 and read through 14. It says, Now when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. I will establish my covenant between me and you. I will multiply you exceedingly. Abram fell on his face and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you will be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make make nations of you, and kings will come forth from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. I will give to you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. I will, I will be their God. Verse 9, God said further to Abraham, Now as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. And here we go. Every male among you shall be circumcised, and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be the sign of the covenant between me and you. And every male among you who is eight days old shall be circumcised throughout your generations. A servant who is born in the house or who is bought with money from any foreigner who is not of your descendants, a servant who is born in your house or who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. Thus shall my covenant be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant, but an uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And so like I said, the argument begins here with God's covenant with Abraham and Israel and the ensuing instructions that follow. 
to circumcise the male infants of Israel as a sign of the covenant. Okay, So circumcision was primarily due to infants, but it was also done to Abraham, who, as we know, was a full-grown adult. Uh, and it was done to the male servants, who were full-grown adults. In the same way, then, Pado baptists view baptism as a sign of the covenant, and they say, therefore, it should be done to infants and to those who believe later in life. Now, there's really three primary texts that they'll use to support this in the New Testament. Um, and so, from Genesis, flip to the New Testament to Romans chapter 4. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. Again, there's three kind of arguments that they'll make, two texts and then a series of other texts. So Romans chapter 4, verse 11, it says, And he received the sign of circumcision, talking about Abraham, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while uncircumcised, so that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that righteousness might be credited to them. Okay, so again, I'm just stating their argument. This is what they'll say. Circumcision here is explicitly stated to be a sign and a seal of faith. Baptism throughout Scripture is implicitly believed to be a sign and a seal of faith. Both are a sign and a seal of faith and accompanying righteousness. But here's the kicker. In the Old Testament, we just saw infants were circumcised, obviously not having faith and not having righteousness but I thought circumcision was a sign and a seal of faith. Well, that's, that's the trick, is that it's both. It's a sign and a seal of faith to Abraham, but it's also to be done to the infants. And so their argument goes, baptism should also be done to infants. Um, if you were doing a logical argument, you might say premise A is that baptism is a sign and a seal of faith in the New Testament. B, uh, circumcision is a sign and a seal of faith in the Old Testament. C, um, <clears throat> babies and true believers were circumcised in the Old Testament. Therefore, babies and true believers should be baptized in the New Testament. And so they'll say that babies are baptized as a precursor to their actual receiving of Christ by faith, uh, that somehow baptism puts them in a better position to receive Christ or that it inaugurates their relationship as a child of God. These are some of the terms you might hear. And which, by the way, this, this whole process is where confirmation comes from, right? Confirmation is an invented man-made process necessitated by infant baptism because they, they pronounce them a child of God. And so you need some form of confirmation down the road to confirm this, to assure that indeed they are going to continue as a child of God. So it's, it's a one work followed by another work, essentially, and then you grant them saved at the end. Um, not that all of confirmation is bad, but that's where it came from. And so in summary, Romans 4.11 is one text that's used. From Romans, though, flip to your right to Colossians. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. Here's the next text that they'll use. Colossians chapter 2. Starting in verse 11. It says, And in him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Here again, those of the Pado baptist persuasion will point out that there is a spiritual element of circumcision right? A spiritual element of circumcision and a spiritual element of baptism in the same passage. And that's really about the extent of the argument because no connection is necessarily made. They're just both mentioned. But nonetheless, this is the text that they'll use to say circumcision has a, has a spiritual meaning. Um, so also baptism has a spiritual meaning. And since circumcision in the physical sense was done to babies, so also baptism in the physical sense should be done to babies. Okay, so that's Colossians 2. The last kind of support text that they'll use in the New Testament are the household texts. And these are the, <clears throat> the references in Scripture that refer to an entire household being baptized. Um, they're really the, the only hope for a, a potential example of a baby baptism in the New Testament. There are no other examples of inf infants being baptized. The 
the slightest hope is that there were infants in the households. And so that's what they'll say. These passages, I think they're listed on your sheet. Acts 10, Acts 16, it occurs two times. Acts 18 and 1 Corinthians uh, 1, uh, 16. Um, and just to read one of those to you, I'll read Acts <clears throat> chapter 16. Uh, the Philippian jailer has just been saved. He's going to kill himself. He's about to kill himself and... Uh, Paul steps in, and in verse 30, uh, he says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house. And he took them that very hour of the night and washed their wounds, and immediately he was baptized, he and all his household. And he brought them into his house and set food before them and rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. And so from this, they'll say, well, surely there were infants in the household um, and in the other five homes in the New Testament as well. And that's how that argument goes. And so in summary of the, the infant baptism argument, they say that even though baptism is intended as a sign and a seal of faith, we should also baptize babies because of the connection with circumcision in the Old Testament. And so now what I want to do is I want to kind of work back through these one by one and, and break down, in a sense, what's going on in each of these uh, points. And I want to begin with the big one, which is the relationship between the church and Israel. Um, recalling the starting point for this relationship, uh, remember it was Genesis 17, and there we saw what's called the Abrahamic Covenant which is a covenant that involved blessing of Abraham's offspring by giving them a land. Okay, circumcision was the sign of this covenant. Now, at this point, though, it's important to recognize that faith was not a part of this covenant. Okay, however, God's covenant actually began prior to this. So go back to Genesis. We were in Genesis 17. This is really important. I want you to look at Genesis chapter 15. Two chapters before Genesis 17. Genesis 15, in verse 5, it says, He, God, took him, Abraham, outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars, if you are able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. And then here's the key, verse 6. Then he believed in the Lord, and he, God, reckoned it to him, Abraham, as righteousness. And this is really important because what we see here is prior to Genesis 17, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. A spiritual covenant was made between God and Abraham with legal terminology, reckoned as righteous or accounted as righteous. Abraham believed God and he was declared righteous. Now what we need to notice is that the covenant that God makes with Abraham's descendants in Genesis 17 is not based on faith, is it? It's not based on faith. God ordained that all of physical, national Israel were to receive the blessings of being his covenant people, regardless of where their heart was before God. All of the males of this entire covenant people were circumcised, regardless of their heart or their parents' heart before God. The promise of the land was given to all of Israel, Therefore, the covenant people of the Old Testament Israel, you might say, was a mixed bag. Within this group, there was a remnant of those who were saved, those through the line of Isaac, perhaps, or Jacob, and all the way through. There was the true Israel within the larger ethnic Israel. Paul introduces this idea in Romans 9, 6, when he says, For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, but... There were many who did not know God nor never did know God. The Ishmaels, the Esau's, and so forth. And so in other words, there are ethnic descendants of Abraham, and there are those who followed Abraham's way by following his example of faith. There are two groups of people, and Abraham is the father of both. He's the father of ethnic Israel and of those who would have faith in God. So here's the crucial question for us. What is the church? Is the church mixed bag, a mixed bag like Israel, with blue and white representing believers and unbelievers in God, regenerate and unregenerate? Or is the church 
made up of solely believers. And when I'm referring to the church, I'm referring to the universal, invisible church. Is the church a mixed bag or is it not a mixed bag? If it's a mixed bag, then infant baptism makes sense. If not, then it absolutely doesn't. Another way to ask this same question is to ask this, which aspects of the Abrahamic covenant are true of the church? Because within the Abrahamic covenant, there was a promise to Abraham's seed, to his offspring regarding land and blessing, but there was also an aspect of the covenant that pertained to Abraham's faith in God, as we saw in Genesis 15. And so, what's the church? Turn back to the New Testament to Galatians. If you can find Colossians, go a few books before that. Chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. This is a tremendous, man, such a good passage. Look at Galatians 3 verse 6. It says, Even so, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Okay, that's quoting our Genesis 15 passage. Verse 7, Therefore be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. The scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations will be blessed in you. So then, those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. So what's the church? Well, this passage answers the question. Paul, in writing the New Testament after Christ had resurrected, says that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. Those who are of faith. Okay, so then what about the Old Covenant? How does, how does this tie in? Is Israel a failed project that God began with and gave up on and now the church has replaced it? How does God's promise uh, with Abraham's seed in Genesis 17, ethnic Israel, how does that tie in? Where does that come into play? And friends, I want to submit this to you. I want to submit to you that the church is a group of people that is connected to Abraham in the sense that we follow his footsteps of faith. He acts as the prototype of faith. Further, since the church does not fulfill the requirements for the covenant in Genesis 17, namely to be Abraham's offspring, ethnic Israel is yet to receive the fullness of blessings from Abraham. Israel is still today waiting to receive the fulfilled blessings that are promised through the Abrahamic covenant that God made. It's not as though God failed his first plan and now has given up and calls in the replacements, which are the church. If so, then what happens if the church fails? Is he going to call in a replacement for us? No, this is not biblical. God is entirely sovereign from the get-go. His plans do not fail. He still has a plan in the future for Israel in order to fulfill this aspect of the covenant. In the meantime, the church gets to experience the blessings of the new covenant that we're going to look at in a second, while at the same time fulfilling God's promise in both of those Old Testament passages that Abraham would be the father to many nations. You're in Galatians. Look at chapter 4. It comments further on this. Galatians chapter 4, verse 22. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the bondwoman and one by the free woman. But the son by the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and the son by the free woman through the promise. Now, just to stop at this point, it's important to know, this is referring to Ishmael and Isaac. It's important to know that Ishmael, the son of the flesh in this text, was still part of the covenant. Why was Ishmael still a part of the covenant? Because he was Abraham's seed, right? He was born from Abraham. Ishmael had been circumcised. Both the son of the flesh and the son of the promise were part of the covenant people of God in the Old Testament. Okay, well, what about the church? Which aspect does the church fall into? Look at verse 28, Galatians 4. And you, brethren, like Isaac, are children of promise. Okay, who's the you, brethren? It's the church, right? He's speaking to the church in Galatia. And it says right here that the church, like Isaac, are children of promise. Which promise is he referring to? He's referring to the promise in Genesis 15 that righteousness comes by faith, not the ethnic promise of 17. Why? Because Ishmael was in that promise. He's distinguishing the two and saying that Isaac had faith. 
The implication of this is that when you and me and every other Christian places faith in God, we become children of the promise. We become children of God. You see, Isaac and Ishmael were both circumcised. But Galatians 4 says that those who are right before the eyes of the Lord are those who are under the covenant of faith. God established a covenant with Abraham that by faith he was seen as righteous, and that has carried over into the church and into the new covenant. So that's the church's connection to Abraham. Galatians makes it clear that we are part of the covenant which is by faith, not the continuation of the mixed bag ethnic Israel. The church isn't a mixed spiritual group, right? There's not unbelievers and believers within the invisible universal church. Therefore, uh, unlike Israel, though, where it was fitting for circumcision to be given to all, the church exists in a time period that is different. It exists under a different covenant, under the new covenant. And I want to begin to talk about this new covenant for just a second. The new covenant was also intended for Israel, but the church, the Gentiles, I should say, are included in, in this new covenant promise. The new covenant was marked by people who were born again with a new spirit. People who are marked differently than ethnic Israel. The new covenant was not a mixed bag. And just to show you this, I want you to turn back to Jeremiah chapter 31. This is the Old Testament again. Hundreds of years before Christ. Incredible prophecy. Uh, If you go to the middle of Psalm, Isaiah, go to the right until you find Jeremiah chapter 31. So what sort of things did this new covenant bring? What sort of things is the future of Israel supposed to be marked by that now both Israel and the church are marked by in this new covenant? Well, look at Jeremiah 31, verse 31. This is incredible. God says, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, My covenant, which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. Verse 33. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. On their hearts I will write it. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. Friends, did you catch verse 34 there? Every person in the new covenant, every person who is a part of the new covenant community knows the Lord. Every person knows the Lord. It is a spiritually authentic community. Ezekiel adds to this, we won't go there, but Ezekiel 36 adds to this, that all those in the new covenant have a new heart and the spirit of God is placed within them, enabling them to obey God and to know him. And the ultimate fulfillment of this new covenant will be at the second coming of Christ in the millennial kingdom when the nation of Israel is brought back to repentance. But in the meantime, the church, which is Jews and Gentiles, is a marked off people group that is to know God personally and intimately. And here's where I want to conclude with this. If this has been a little bit up here, we're going to land a little bit. Here's where I want to conclude. Giving the sign of baptism to those who are not born again is to contradict the meaning of the people group into which we are welcoming them into. Let me say that again. Giving the sign of baptism to those who are not born again is to contradict the meaning of the people group into which we are welcoming them into. The new covenant people was meant to be a different holy people with personal faith in God. Down to each individual. No familial ties. No ethnic ties. Therefore, it must be composed of only true believers. Guys, do you see why this is important when it comes to the issue of infant baptism? Because baptizing babies not only sends mixed signals regarding salvation by grace, but it contradicts the very nature of the people group that we are to be. Okay, so that is the relationship between the church and Israel in just a few minutes. It's not exhaustive. But flip back to Romans. I want want to take a look at this again. Hopefully that lays a groundwork for us working through these other passages 
and then coming to a conclusion. Abraham had received the sign of circumcision after he had believed, right? Genesis 15, then Genesis 17. And so look at Romans 4, verse 9. It says, Is this blessing then on the circumcised or on the uncircumcised also? For we say faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it credited? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. Okay, so Paul's just making the point that we already know. Abraham was a believer, or he was saved, and then he was circumcised. Now, verse 11 states that he was circumcised as a seal and a sign of the righteousness of faith. And I just got to ask the question, why? Why was Abraham circumcised if he was already a believer? If he'd already been given righteousness. Look at verse 11. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while uncircumcised, so that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that righteousness might be credited to them, and the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcised, but who also follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. So, Abraham was circumcised, but he was not circumcised for the sake of the Gentiles who would trust in God, but for the sake of Israel. Let me try to explain this. Abraham is the father of two people groups, Israel and all those who will trust in God, Israel or Gentiles. Now, God made a covenant with the people of Israel to bless them, to give them a land, to multiply their seed, but this did not guarantee their salvation. Now, though, with that being said, Abraham, even from the beginning, was meant to father the nation of Israel and all those who would believe and place their faith in God. Therefore, Abraham's circumcision was to identify with Israel so that they might look to his example, right, Father Abraham, look to his example and also believe in God just like he had. His circumcision wasn't linked with his belief. It was linked for the sake of Israel as the chosen nation of God to be an example of faith. Friends, this passage, kind of concluding, it doesn't teach anything about a a connection between circumcision and baptism. In fact, if anything, it separates them. It, It makes the distinguishment between ethnic Israel and those who would follow, as it says, follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham. And so... That's Romans 4.11. Let me ask this question, though. Did circumcision have a spiritual meaning or spiritual significance as well? Well, yes, it did. And to answer that, we need to go back to Colossians chapter 2. Kind of jumping around a little bit tonight, but it's good for us. Going back to Colossians 2, I want to press into this a bit further. And looking at these two verses in Colossians, we, we must recognize, right, there is a spiritual use of circumcision and baptism. Both are used to describe the spiritual state of being born again. The Pado-Baptists are right uh, in that both of these appear together. There is a spiritual use of both. Here's the problem. I don't see a physical use of either of them in this passage. Do you? Let's read it again. Look at verse 11. And in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Nowhere does this text indicate that it is referring to either a physical circumcision or a physical baptism. In fact, just the opposite is true. Track with me for a second. There's three references to circumcision, and all three of them affirm a spiritual use of circumcision. Verse 11, and in him you were also circumcised. Let's just stop there. How can you be circumcised in Christ physically? How is one physically in Christ and physically circumcised if we're we're strictly talking about physical circumcision? It's not. It's talking about the state of being spiritually circumcised in the heart by Christ. And it's clarified in the next phrase, with a circumcision made without hands. Again, this further clarifies the said point. It's referring to an internal circumcision, one that removes the heart of stone and puts in a heart of flesh, one that's of the inward man. And thirdly, it comes up again when Paul says, in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Uh, 
And now this is a play on words, but the removal of the body of flesh is also a spiritual reference to the sinful flesh or the inner man, right? Romans chapter 6, 7 and 8 deal with this. This is obviously not physical flesh because he just said a circumcision made without hands, right? And we know it's done by Christ. Verse 12 goes on to talk about baptism. And once again, it's not speaking of a literal baptism. Does anyone know what baptize or baptism means? And you probably do. It means to immerse or to place into. And actually, I was talking to Brian this week. He said the editors in, during the uh, medieval ages when infant baptism was so prevalent actually uh, just transliterated the word baptize into the English because of infant baptism. They didn't even translate the word. It should be translated immersed because it's always by immersion and it's always for believers. But even this practice influenced the fact that now we say baptisms instead of immersions or dunkings or whatever you want to say. Um, So this spiritual language talks about the riches of, in Colossians 2, dying to self and being raised with Christ to walk in newness of life. Both baptism and circumcision refer to the same thing, which is being born again, regeneration from within. Nowhere in this passage are the physical acts of circumcision and baptism linked, and certainly nowhere are they prescribed, and certainly nowhere is circumcision prescribed as being replaced by baptism of infants. So you kind of see the point. Lastly, uh, household texts. Uh, if we were to work through these household texts and interact with them, here's what we'd find. We'd find that there are several assumptions being made by the Pado baptists Number one, they're assuming that there were infants in the household. Okay, and just from an outside perspective, that seems like quite an assumption to assume that there's babies in every household that's referred to. Number two, they're assuming that the whole household had not believed prior to salvation. In fact, there's every indication that they had believed um, for example, the Roman soldier Cornelius in Acts 10.2, it says he was a devout man who feared God with all of his household. And so whatever household is being referred to there, we know feared God. Uh, likewise, in Acts 16, it says all rejoiced with the Philippian jailer. His entire household rejoiced with him. And so whoever is being included in the household is fearing God and rejoicing which indicates some sort of cognitive faith in God. A third assumption is that the term household includes every member of a family, when in fact, 1 Samuel and Titus both refer to a household, and later in the text, it's clear that not every member of the household was in the reference to the household. Like it'll say, the household went up to this place, oh, but the mom and the young one stayed behind. And so a household doesn't have to include every member And to somewhat just cap this point, the New Testament does away with familial ties for salvation, right? And and perhaps the reason for this is because of the topic of spiritual adoption. If you think about spiritual adoption, the premise of spiritual adoption is that we are naturally not children of God, but that at the point of conversion where faith is enacted, we become children of God. If one's declared a child of God at infant baptism, which they are, we now pronounce this person a child of God, uh, then it destroys this entire concept of adoption that we see in the Bible that is so wonderful. Listen to John chapter 1, verse 12. John says, As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were not born of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God of God. The children of God are those who have believed and have been born from above. The saying, God has no grandchildren, seems apt for this situation. And so closing out this household argument, four, guys, listen to this. There's five household texts. Four of them refer to the fact that the house first cognitively believed and then the other one assumes it on the basis of all the other Look again at Acts 16, just to wrap this up. Acts 16, I want to show you this and just point out a few things. From Acts 16, so he asked the question in verse 30, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Verse 31, we see, he says, Believe in Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. 
Now, it's important to understand the command is believe in Christ and it applies to him and his household. Whoever believes in Christ, you, your wife, your kids, any of them can be saved by believing in Christ. Verse 32, they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house. Okay, it's not just speaking to the Philippian jailer. It's his whole household. Again, however we're defining household, however Luke is defining household, is being spoken the word of God to. Okay, verse 33 is where they were all baptized, he and his household. And then again in verse 34, if you look, they all rejoiced greatly having believed in God. And then it says with his whole household. So there's just no way around the fact that the infant baptism argument in this passage holds no water. Pun intended. Uh, Therefore, we know belief must come first, then baptism. Just a few other issues with infant baptism. Uh, We countered some arguments, but I want to give some positive or some offensive um, issues as well. Maybe one of the reasons this church doesn't baptize babies. Number one, every New Testament command and instance of baptism is preceded by faith. Okay? You can even find that in the Colossians 2.12 text we were just at. Uh, Acts 2.38 is often used. But it says, repent and believe. Uh, Or repent and be baptized. I mean, sorry. (laughs) Repent and then be baptized. And the order is key there. Every New Testament command is preceded by faith. Um, with reference to baptism. Number two, there are no examples, commands or instances, or textual indications, explicit or implicit, in Scripture of infant baptism. There's not one. As we've seen, we just went through their entire argument, and none of it really seems to make any sense. Thirdly, it confuses salvation by grace alone through faith alone. Think about a kid who's baptized as a baby and declared a child of God and then he gets to be older, what's he going to say? If you ask him, are you a Christian? He's going to say, oh yeah, I was baptized. It's like, well, that's not what I asked. I asked, Have you, do you love and follow Christ? It, it just confuses the whole matter. I'm not saying that people who have been baptized as a baby don't come to truly know Christ, but it adds confusion to the matter. Number four, it undermines the true meaning and beauty of baptism. Gang, Baptism is twofold. There's two reasons for baptism. Number one, it's a public uh, declaration of your faith. Okay, Jesus doesn't want you to be a closet Christian. Public declaration. Number two, it's a corporate identification. I'll talk about those again in a second. And fifthly, a reason, another issue with baptism, every New Testament example of baptism is by full immersion. And The title was kind of an attempt at humor, to dunk or not to dunk. But in all seriousness, every New Testament example is by full immersion of baptism, right? The word means immerse. And so if we are going to baptize babies, it must be by full immersion. There's no way around that. It's got to be by full immersion. And so, again, uh, it just doesn't make any sense. Now, just to kind of begin to wind down, a few similarities and differences between circumcision and baptism. Uh, Circumcision in the Old Testament was a sign, okay? And, and I want to track with you here. Kids in the Old Testament, kids of the nation of Israel in the Old Testament would be circumcised on the eighth day as a sign of the covenant. But I want to ask this question. In the Old Testament, what was the condition for being part of the covenant? What did they have to do? Nothing. They had to be born. And they had to be born in Abraham's line. Israel was God's chosen nation. He, was, he put his hand upon them and said, I'm going to use you. And so being a part of God's people boiled down to their birth. Now, was Israel sinful? Oh my goodness, yes. So listen closely. Circumcision, and this is key. Circumcision was a sign to the people of Israel that number one, they were the covenant people of God. Number two, it was a reminder that they were sinful even down to their very reproductive nature. At the core of their being, all they can produce is more sin. It was a reminder of their sin. And thirdly, it was a reminder that they still had need for further circumcision of the heart. That is not only a New Testament concept. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, circumcision of the heart. They needed to have faith in God, just like Father Abraham. Right? Paul hits on this uh, in 4.11. 
that he was circumcised as a reminder of his faith in God. Even Abraham, circumcision was linked as a reminder. And so for the kiddos, it would be the same. Baptism, now secondly, baptism in the New Testament is also a sign. Okay, baptism's a sign. It has dual meaning. There's physical water baptism and there's also spiritual baptism. And remember, it just means immersed. And so Paul uses it in Romans 6 and other places to refer to our nature of being placed into Christ. He says, you have been baptized into Christ, not referring to a physical baptism, but a spiritual one, being placed into Christ. Baptism was a sign and is a sign of belonging to the covenant people of God. That's why it's so often in the same verse as believing. Jesus says, believe and be baptized. The Great Commission, right? Go make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father. Because it is supposed to be an outward declaration. But the order is what's key there. And I just want to point out a few differences between these two signs. Um, <clears throat> recall that, number one, the church is not a mixed bag. It is... Uh, consistent of true believers only. We are the promise which is by faith. Therefore, the, the church is not to contain some who are true and under the spiritual covenant of God and some who are just coasting under the ethnic blessings of their parents, under some act that their parents did in sprinkling water on their forehead. This is not God's plan for the church. Instead, the condition for baptism is faith. One must individually believe upon Christ prior to baptism. So let me put it this way. Circumcision was a sign that came before putting your faith in God. Baptism is a sign that comes after putting your faith in God. Or, if I could illustrate it this way, find a way to prop this up. What was it that uh, included the Old Testament people in to the covenant people of God. If you can't read that, it says by birth. Okay, they were included by birth. What is it that includes the New Testament people into the covenant people of God? If you can't read it, it says by rebirth. Simple way to understand this. Circumcision affiliated with birth. Baptism affiliated with rebirth or being born again spiritually. In the Old Testament, the individual still needed to believe to be saved. In the New Testament, though, these familial blessings, there are no people in the covenant of God like there was in the Old Testament that can just coast and receive blessing, right? They still needed to believe to be saved, but they were in the covenant. In the New Testament, it's not that way. And so, friends, it's so crucial that we see legitimate differences and similarities between uh, the covenants. I mean, just one difference, for crying out loud, where was the sign placed? Okay. I'm not going to say it, but you know where it was placed. Why? And it was only on boys, right? Why was it only for boys? Because it was tied into the ethnic line of Abraham. It was tied into the DNA. Why is now baptism not for just boys, but to every individual, guys and gals? Because it is tied in to the individual's faith, tied into the individual's heart before God. So, Pado-Baptists have made wrong assumptions and they have connected incorrectly the people of God in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Um, <clears throat> yeah, just to conclude, I want to conclude with uh, some other things about baptism. Believers and only believers should be baptized. Um, guys, it's not that difficult, right? Scripture says it, you believe in God and then you're baptized. Uh, you actually have to work harder to try to find a case for infant baptism than you do if you just read the New Testament. Baptism is to be, like I said, a public declaration of your faith and a corporate identification with the people of God. But friends, I want to warn you, if you're a believer and you have not been baptized as a believer, it's sin. Jesus commanded that we be baptized. He, again, he doesn't want any closet Christians. It would be so easy to just say you believe in God, but never have any outward sign of that belief. You've got to identify with the people of God. You've got to make your faith uh, public. Um, every believer is required to take this step. And think about it. Following a baptism, the church can now treat this individual. They know for, 
not I guess for a fact, but they've listened to this person profess their faith in God and they can now embrace them into the body of Christ and now the one another's apply. Uh, they can treat them like a, a believer. They can bear their burdens. This is why there's a corporate identification aspect of baptism. So if you haven't been baptized as a believer, you must be. And just in closing, why is this important? It's important because the glory of God is on display. The glory, the glory of God is on display in two things, in these two ordinances. In communion, because we see a glimpse of the gospel, right? We remember the gospel. We remember what God has done for us through his son, that though we are sinners and wretches within, he has made a way by sacrificing his son's body and blood uh, bearing the wrath of God. And, and as we take communion, we remember that sacrifice. We remember the gospel. And ultimately, we give glory to God. Okay? Therefore, communion is for the glory of God. In the same way, guys, baptism is a demonstration of the glory of God. If you ever sit in a, in a church service where people are being baptized, is your heart not filled with praise and adoration? As you remember uh, not only your own salvation if you're a believer, but you also witness the, the testimony of someone who has been changed by the powerful grace of God. Baptism is more than just uh, something to do where you get dunked in water. It's a demonstration, a physical resemblance of the gospel and a physical re, uh, resemblance of the glory of God in changing sinners from dead wretches to spirit-filled, Christ-honoring believers. This is why this is important, guys. This is why we take the time to sort through these issues. I don't just want to pick on people. I don't just want to pick out an error and go, let's go disprove that. The glory of God is at stake in the church. This is a crucial matter, friends. Therefore, we've got to get it right. We've got to get all these matters we've been studying all semester, and tonight, baptism and communion, we've got to get them right. Because if God's going to gain glory through the church, we've got to worship him in the manner in which he prescribed. Amen? Amen. Let's pray and band. You guys can come up. Father, Lord, some heavy stuff we've looked at this evening. Uh, Lord, if some people's minds are swimming, I think my own mind's swimming a little bit. Um, God, I just pray that we would focus in on what matters. And that is that Jesus has come to save sinners like us. Lord, when someone places faith in your son, you desire us to be baptized as a believers by immersion. God, what a thing that you've done just in giving us a way to remember, to witness, to glorify you through communion and baptism. God, I just pray for any here who aren't believers that they would believe upon Christ, Lord, because the days are approaching, Lord. We are in the end, end uh, the last days, and God, um, they need you. Lord, they need to worship you. They need you in their life. So, Lord, would you save them? And God, if there's some in here who are believers who have not yet been baptized as a believer, Lord, would you convict, and would they take that step of obedience in uh, publicly declaring their faith in you and, um, and being received into a corporate body? Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.